Well, if you would open your copy of God's Word with me uh, to John chapter 10. Now, when a, when a politician runs for office, uh, he or she usually runs uh, upon a platform where they explain uh, what they believe and, and what they are hoping to do if uh, they are elected. And usually, uh, th- those platforms address some common areas, no, no matter if uh, that person is a uh, Republican, a Democrat, or some other political party. Uh, those platforms usually address three big areas, and you could maybe alliterate them in this way, that those uh, platforms will address uh, solutions, safety, uh, and satisfaction. Okay, that uh, that politician uh, will emphasize the ideas that they have to fix uh, the problems that we are facing. Right? They, they will offer up solutions. We have uh, this situation in our society. Here's the answer, and uh, we must apply this particular solution uh, to avoid uh, these problems. Uh, the second big area that they might address uh, is our fears. Right? Uh, they, they will address the things that we are uh, most concerned about, right? closely tied with uh, those problems, uh, but they will address uh, and promise safety uh, regarding uh, those fears that we are facing. Uh, and then a third might be uh, satisfaction. Uh, ultimately, every politician is going to, uh, and providing solutions and promising safety, uh, they're going to be holding up a vision for the good life. Uh, holding up a an idea uh, of what uh, will satisfy us most, and uh, by by focusing on these matters uh, of the problems that we face and what we should fear uh, and our, our vision for the good life, uh, you also start to see again as we talk about our worldview class that. W- Depending upon where we begin uh, in looking at those problems, uh, we're going to have very different visions for uh, what the the answers are, what we should fear, uh, and uh, ultimately what the good life looks like. Uh, But in in addressing these big areas uh, of worldview significance, politicians, uh, in a very small way, uh, are holding themselves up to be a savior. Uh, maybe with a with a lowercase s, right? Uh, because typically, uh, all of the, the solutions uh, that they uh, promise, all of the, the safety uh, and all of the satisfaction is connected with electing them. Uh, that's the, the idea. And uh, this in and of itself is a problem, right? Our politicians holding them, themselves up as saviors. But uh, compounding this problem, as you probably have noticed, is that our society is beginning to look at uh, the state, uh, at the government, as uh, the end-all, be-all. Uh, we are beginning to look at the state as what is ultimate. And that is what we place our, our hope in. And uh, what, what we have seen throughout our, our culture and our society is that we have begun to place uh, our hope in the state and then our hope in a particular politician, uh, regardless of, of which party that may be. Uh, both uh, major parties are guilty of this because it's, it's permeated our culture. Uh, we are looking to a particular politician to deliver us from our problems, to alleviate our fears, and to provide us with the good life. Uh, and, uh, and ultimately, as, as our culture is pulling us in that direction to place our hopes and our trust in the government and in a particular individual, maybe who's running for office or is in office, uh, 
that tension and that pull is why we need John chapter 10 right here and right now. Because John chapter 10 uh, is going to address all of those things uh, and it's going to offer uh, a different way of viewing our current circumstances and uh, realign what we really should be looking in and trusting in. We talked about this last week uh, and even when we looked at uh, Psalm 20 verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Uh, And what we see in John chapter 10 is that we are called to trust in the good shepherd. Uh, And that is what we have uh, seen uh, last week and what we will see again this week. Uh, And uh, I would, just by way of reminder, point out to you that there's really uh, no change in scene between John chapter 9 and John chapter 10. So when we came to John chapter 10 last week, uh, we saw Jesus speaking to and addressing uh, the Pharisees and the man who was born blind uh, and others in in a kind of a a crowd surrounding them, uh, which we saw at the end of John chapter 9. And uh, Jesus spoke to uh, the Pharisees uh, in uh, verses 1 through 5, which we studied last week, and he's, he's... corrected them and addressed them uh, and rebuked them as the false uh, teachers, false shepherds in Israel. And he did this by pointing to what a shepherd uh, is called to do uh, and how the shepherd interacts with his sheep. If you look with me at John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief. And a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he was when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, Jesus spoke that, what's called, he identifies it as a a figure of speech in verse 6. He he spoke that to uh, the Pharisees uh, to indict them and to explain why the man who was born blind has left them and has come to Christ. Uh, That man who was born blind, uh, Jesus pursued him, healed him, brought him in, uh, and now that man is is following Jesus. Uh, And the... Pharisees are the false shepherds who were previously abusing him. But verse 6, if you look there, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And again, that's even explained because they are not among his sheep. So they don't hear his voice and comprehend, uh, and they don't follow. Uh, And because they did not hear and understand or comprehend what Jesus was saying to them in uh, the first illustration, uh, Jesus is going to give them another picture in verses 7 through 10. And then he's going to give them another picture in verses 11 through 18. And now what's really important for us to keep in mind is there's uh, similar terminology in each of these three pictures in John 10. Uh, It's going to be similar imagery, imagery of sheep, shepherds, uh, sheepfolds, uh, thieves and robbers, all of this. But the the three illustrations are not tied together. Uh, There's a discontinuity between them. So uh, kind of remember 
what everything that we covered last week, but then also sort of forget it uh, and disconnect uh, verses 1 through 6 from what we're going to look at this morning, which is verses 7 through 10. And if you look at those with me. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let's pause and and pray there after the reading of God's Word. Lord Jesus, we are so amazed by your words here in John chapter 10. Lord, we are so thankful for who you are, for all that you have done. We marvel at your grace and at your mercy that we sang of earlier this morning. And we pray that you would help us to behold you for all that you are, to behold you as the good shepherd. But Lord, help us to grasp all that you are seeing here as well. Help us to plant your word deep in us and may your spirit lead us and guide us in comprehending and then ultimately applying your truth to our hearts and lives that we are transformed to become more and more like you. Lord, lead us and guide us now, we ask. Amen. As we, as we study these verses, really what we are going to see and what Jesus is going to be emphasizing is his own exclusivity. Uh, that there uh, is a salvation that is offered, but it's offered exclusively through Christ. Uh, but in, in what way is salvation exclusive, right? That, that's almost a dirty word in our uh, culture today. Uh, exclusive. Uh, everything should be what? Inclusive, right? Uh, that, that is our, our modern day value. But you, could, you could say that salvation is both inclusive and exclusive. But ultimately, uh, we need to build our understanding of salvation uh, based upon the teaching of Christ. Uh, and we need to, to build our understanding of salvation from Him because He's the one who offers it to us. And what we're going to see in this passage is Jesus is going to give us three exclusive promises about salvation. And the first promise uh, is seen in verses 7 and 8. That Jesus promises that He is the only door to salvation. If you look back at those verses, Jesus begins... And he says again, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, that, that is the way that he uh, introduces uh, a new thought. And it's an, it's an assertion that what is about to follow afterwards is uh, we can rest assured that it is true. And Jesus is, is giving us uh, certainty of the, the truths that are about to be proclaimed. And then Jesus makes another I am statement. Uh, And throughout John's Gospel, uh, there are several of these statements that are well known. uh, And each of them uh, is a picture uh, of who Jesus is or what he will accomplish. Each of them is uh, intended to reveal truth about Jesus and how he relates to us and how we should see him and view him. Now, the first of these statements was back in John chapter 6, where uh, in verse 35, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. 
John chapter 8, verse 58, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. We have this statement here uh, in verse 7, that he is the door of the sheep. Uh, In verse 11 in this chapter, uh, next week we'll look at, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then John 15, 1, he says, I am the true vine. And now each of these statements is very, very significant theologically. Uh, But there's also uh, some unique grammar that goes along with these statements where Jesus uh, makes this emphasis. uh, In the Greek, he says, ego eimi, I myself, I am uh, this. Uh, But it also has another kind of an emphasis, an an emphasis upon exclusivity. Uh, In essence, he's saying, I, I alone am this. And you can read that into uh, all of his statements. He alone is the bread of life. He alone is the light of the world. He alone is the good shepherd. He alone is the resurrection and the life. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. He alone is the true vine. Then circling back around to what we're looking at here, he alone is the door for the sheep. But what does he mean when he says that? Well, if you remember the kind of the, the background to the, the parable last week where we talked about uh, a, a sheep pen that was kind of a, a community sheep pen where, where multiple families, multiple shepherds uh, would bring their sheeps, uh, their sheeps, uh, their sheep. If I do that, just we need like a check yourself. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they would bring their sheep. Uh, and they would bring them into the pen, uh, which was uh, kind of a walled uh, around within the, the town. Uh, and uh, there would be a, a single watchman who would uh, guard the, the gate uh, to that uh, sheep pen and, uh, the, uh, at night. And that, that uh, watchman would know that he would only open the, the gate to the actual shepherds that the sheep belonged to. And in the morning, uh, the shepherds would come in uh, and they would summon their sheep, just using their their voice or their own call, uh, and the sheep would hear whatever that call was uh, and they would uh, move over to be with their shepherd. Uh, And then their shepherd would lead them out. That was the the picture uh, of the sheepfold in verses 1 through 5. But uh, in this illustration that Jesus is giving now, uh, he's referring to and pointing to a different type of sheepfold. What would you do if you were uh, out uh, as a shepherd pasturing your your flocks at night uh, out in the the countryside, right? When uh, we're familiar with the the story in Luke chapter 2, when the shepherds were out in the fields watching their flocks and the angels appeared, right? What do you do with your flock when you're not near a town, you're not near a a sheepfold that's already made? What would you do? Well, those shepherds would uh, would make a uh, makeshift wall out of rocks, kind of stacking them up. That's the one good thing about being in the wilderness. What's readily available? rocks. Uh, and so they would, they would build a, a makeshift wall out of rocks, uh, and they would leave a little gap. Uh, they would build the wall all the way around. Uh, they make a little gap, and at dusk, they would drive their sheep into this makeshift uh, sheepfold. Uh, and then, because there wasn't a gate, the shepherd himself would lay down in front of the opening. Uh, and that would ensure that none of the sheep 
that he put in would get out. That would ensure that no wild animals would come in and ravage the sheep in the night. Uh, And so Jesus is pointing to this picture, which again would be very, very familiar to everybody in the ancient Near East. Everybody in Israel would have this understanding that in the wilderness uh, a shepherd would go and he would lay down and he would be the gate to that sheepfold in the wilderness. That's what Jesus is pointing to here. That he alone is the door for the sheep to enter into. And here he's speaking really about entering into a relationship with God the Father. Entering into fellowship with God. That's what it speaks about in terms of entering into this sheepfold. But as Jesus uses this picture... I don't think he's saying that, that, or the focus is not so much upon him being the barrier, right? Doors can be barriers and and guarding an entryway. Uh, The bigger focus is that Jesus is the passageway, right? That's what doors are as well. Uh, They are passageways from one area or one room into another. Uh, And Jesus is emphasizing that he is the only passageway, the exclusive door, uh, and there is no other door that leads into fellowship and relationship with God. Uh, And if Jesus is uh, the exclusive, the only, if he alone is the door for the sheep, that means what about every other shepherd? They're false. And Jesus says as much in verse 8. If you look with me there. He says, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Uh, and when Jesus uh, makes this statement, uh, he is not speaking uh, and referring to uh, all of the faithful Old Testament prophets, right? All who came before him. Well, that's Moses uh, and Joshua and Elijah and others who were faithful men of God that were commended. Jesus is not referring to them. He's referring to uh, the false shepherds uh, throughout Israel's history. He's referring to the false shepherds uh, throughout uh, Israel's uh, present uh, time with Jesus there in the land. And ultimately, all of those shepherds still must enter through the gate. Uh, Anybody is a false shepherd if they are unwilling to see Jesus as, as that exclusive passageway, that exclusive door to be in relationship with God the Father. Uh, And uh, Jesus is saying all of those other false shepherds, and there were also other pseudo-messiahs during that time. There were others who who rose up and said, I'm the Messiah, follow me. And what did they prove to be? False. And what promises did they make? Going back to those, those promises, what do politicians promise? Solutions, salvation, uh, safety, satisfaction. The false messiahs rose up and promised all of those things and then demonstrated themselves to be false. But Jesus is the true shepherd. And his sheep, the flock uh, of people who belong to him, those whom the Father has given to him, uh, how will they respond to those false shepherds? What does the verse 8 say? They don't listen. Uh, They don't follow after that other voice. And that uh, is the same truth that was presented to us uh, in the first illustration, that uh, sheep will only listen to uh, the voice of their own shepherd. Uh, And it's amazing because uh, there there are stories of uh, shepherds uh, uh, who will tell a stranger uh, to go and do the exact same call, the exact same noise, uh, even calling their sheep by name. And guess what? Those sheep will not respond to the voice of the stranger, even when he uses the exact same words that the shepherd uses. 
which is amazing, right? Sheep know and understand. And Jesus is pointing out that his sheep were not drawn away by these false messiahs and false teachers, false shepherds. And ultimately, that is what the flock of God does. And Jesus is that exclusive door to salvation. He's the only way someone can enter into a relationship with God. And ultimately, as I said, that that word exclusive, right, maybe the the biggest stumbling block uh, to our culture today, right, Uh, to to demand that that Jesus is the only way and that there's an exclusivity uh, to him and the salvation that he offers. Uh, Our culture has bought into what is known as pluralism. Okay, kind of flowing out of postmodern thought that uh, everybody can be right even if we disagree. That all views are equally valid. That, that's the, the concept of pluralism. And, and pluralism will seek to condemn those who believe uh, in absolute truth. And uh, you may say, I don't, I don't know if I've really been influenced by this. Well, have you ever had the temptation uh, in a conversation with somebody where you didn't want to condemn their view? Right? And again, that, that's where uh, we, we are uh, products of our culture, where, where those temptations creep into our own lives and we realize what we're, we're giving into them without even uh, acknowledging it or realizing it. And our culture's adoption of pluralism is shown in that little desire within our own hearts to be accepted and not want to condemn any other view. But uh, ironically, within pluralism, what is the one worldview that they do condemn? Christianity, right? And why do they condemn Christianity? Narrow-minded. Because uh, we say that Jesus is exclusive, that he is the only way. And why do we say that? Because Jesus said that. Uh, And we need to echo uh, what our shepherd has taught us and what he himself says about himself. Now, now when you come across this in the culture, here's something to keep in mind. As we are being accused of being absolutist and, and of being narrow-minded when you're in a conversation with somebody and they and they use that you can say well uh, how are you sure that pluralism is absolutely true right Be- because they're accusing us of being absolutist and narrow-minded but what are they being about pluralism absolutist and narrow-minded uh, and this is where we have to begin to again think critically and apply these things of how do you know pluralism is the way uh, the truth and the life, so to speak, if you're going to look to it in that sense. Uh, but we, we build upon Christ. I'm sorry that the worldview class is creeping into my, my preaching here. Uh, but this is really important because we are going to encounter this. And we also, when, when, when we are accused of being exclusive, it's okay to embrace that. Uh, it is okay to acknowledge and say, yes, Jesus is the only way to have a relationship with God the Father. And I believe that because he said that, and then uh, he, he died for that truth. He died to bring us to the Father. That's how convinced Jesus was of that truth. And we can be convinced of that same reality and not shrink back and give in to uh, the postmodern pluralism of our day. And we can stand firm and say, no, I am convinced of this. And again, just ask questions. Why are you convinced that pluralism is true? And if you're really convinced that pluralism is true, you shouldn't condemn me. You should accept my view uh, as being equally valid. If you're really going to be a consistent pluralist. Uh, But ultimately, Jesus makes this promise that he is the only door for the sheep. He is the only door to salvation. 
But then he makes a second promise in verse 9. If you look at that with me. He repeats himself. So you know it's important. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Uh, And this statement has the same emphatic structure. I, myself, I alone am the door. Says it twice. And then he's going to to give uh, three assured benefits. There's three future tense verbs, or actually four future tense verbs, but three big ideas that that are going to to serve as giving us uh, certain promises about what will happen if we do enter through Jesus, right? That we will see that he promises, or Jesus promises, he alone offers eternal life. Uh, And this is uh, what is promised, that uh, he will be saved. This is the, the alliteration that I spoke of earlier. What do politicians do? They really just mimic Christ. They offer solutions, but Christ offers the ultimate solution to a man's biggest problem, salvation. That's what Jesus says in verse 10. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Now, and here, Jesus doesn't unpack that. He doesn't explain what we need to be saved. He's already taught that throughout this gospel. If you, if you turn back a page uh, to Romans chapter 8, verses 23 and 24. And you want to see uh, boldness and certainty? Speaking to the Pharisees, he said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus makes it very clear. We all have a problem. Sin. We have all lived in rebellion against the God who has loved us and created us. Uh, And our only hope is to look to Christ in faith. He's the only door. The only way is looking to him. The Apostle Paul uh, puts it in a, a different way in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, where he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Those are exact numbers, right? We all have this problem. Jesus says, if you enter through him, you will be saved. Future tense with certainty. But then he also makes a second promise, that he will go in and out, right? And this is, this is language that points to safety. This is shepherding language, and it's also covenantal language that points back to the Old Testament. Because listen to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 6. Uh, in speaking about uh, covenant promises, Moses wrote uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Psalm 121, verse 8. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The idea is that you will uh, be safe because you have a shepherd watching and overseeing you. Right? You will go into the safety of uh, the sheepfold and you will go out, you'll find pasture, and then you'll be able to go back and forth. That's the concept and the language of safety. Uh, but what is being spoken of regarding safety here is not earthly safety. Because I also seem to remember many passages in the New Testament where uh, we are not promised earthly safety. What are we promised? John 16:33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. 
but take heart, I have overcome the world. What did Jesus promise? One of the less popular promises? Uh, that we will have tribulation, right? But where do we find peace? He's overcome the world. Or listen to Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, there's a truth and a reality that we need to embrace. So the safety that is spoken of here, of going in and out, speaks of uh, the, the security and safety of our uh, eternal inheritance, of our eternal salvation. Uh, that is what is being spoken of here. And again, we are encouraged. Uh, where are we to store up treasure? In heaven. Why do we store up treasure there? Because yeah, uh, moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Uh, That is the safety and security of uh, our eternal salvation. But everything in the here and now is not guaranteed. So Jesus promises salvation, safety, and then third, says he will find pasture. What does the sheep long for most? Green pastures, right? Now those who trust in Christ will be led to those green pastures. What does that immediately bring to mind? One of, the, one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Right? He leads us going in, going out. He leads us, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Now, this is the picture that Jesus is portraying, uh, and he is promising us eternal life. And Jesus promises salvation, safety, and satisfaction uh, to all who would enter through him. So in one sense, you might say that Jesus is the ultimate politician, right? It's the only time I'll compare Jesus to a politician. But, uh, but everything that he promises, he delivers on. He doesn't give false promises, He doesn't promise all of these things uh, and then uh, let his sheep die in the wilderness. He delivers all that he has said. And he himself guarantees all that he has said. What Jesus promises here is eternal life. Uh, And that is the the whole goal uh, of the Gospel of John. John is, is wanting us to see and behold Jesus for all that he is so that we would look and trust in Him uh, and have eternal life. Uh, That's the purpose statement that John gives at the very end of his Gospel. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now, and herein lies that portion. Remember I said that salvation uh, can be very much considered exclusive, but also inclusive. You're like, what do, I, what do you mean by that? In what way is salvation inclusive? But uh, think about it this way. Jesus offers salvation, safety, and satisfaction uh, to anyone who would enter through him. That, that is the key. Okay, in, in the Greek, in, in that statement uh, of, of entering through him, uh, there's two words that are put at the very front of the sentence, out of place where they should be. Uh, and it shows uh, emphatically the focus of that is through him, through Jesus. Through him, if anyone would enter, 
These are the promises and the blessings uh, that Christ will bestow. If you believe in Christ and have an absolute trust in Him, these are the blessings that you receive. But, but noticing the only key is entering through Christ. Think about all the things that are not written there. You don't have to clean yourself up before coming to Christ. You don't have to try and wash yourself and make yourself clean before you can enter through. But what's the emphasis? Looking to Christ in faith. Entering through Him. Uh, and the, 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 what holds so many of us back is this idea of, well, I have to clean myself up before Jesus will accept me. Right? I've I got to get my act together. Uh, and it's actually... It's that very mindset that you can clean yourself up ahead of time. That's the very thing that we need to repent of. That's the very thing that we need to turn away from because when we're doing that, what are we trusting in? Yeah, our ability to wash ourselves and make ourselves acceptable to Christ. We can't do that. What does Jesus emphasize here? What are we called to do? It's to enter through Him. Look to Him in faith and trust. Repent of trying to clean yourself off. If you look to Him in faith and trust, He will clean you off. Because what does a shepherd do when a dirty sheep comes into the fold? Cleans him up. Washes him down. If you you walk through Jesus and enter into the the sheepfold of God, He will sanctify you. He will make you holy. You you won't have a choice on that. And it's it's a... painful process at times, but it will happen, and it's a good thing. Uh, But there are no prerequisites. There are no mandates ahead of just entering through Christ. Amen? The only requirement is faith. The only mandate Jesus gives to us. And what a promise that is. That if we would enter through Him, that we would have eternal life, that we would be saved, that we would go in and out and find pasture but then as if eternal life wasn't enough right like jesus can you up the ante a little bit like that's good but you got to sell this to me a little bit more what jesus says in verse 10 he makes a third promise there jesus promises that he alone delivers abundant life verse 10 jesus says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Okay, Jesus makes it clear that he does not merely offer eternal life. As if that was not enough. He also delivers abundance in this life. And he makes this point by way of contrast, right? Now, what does what the, the thief come only to do? To steal, kill, and destroy. And that threefold repetition, it's kind of a Hebrew way of really, really underlining something. Making it very, very emphatic. Think about these other threefold repetitions, right? Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the threefold repetition. Right? What does he say when he teaches us about prayer in Matthew chapter 7? That we should ask, seek, and yeah, knock. And it will be given to us. This threefold repetition emphasizes and highlights uh, the catastrophe that comes upon people under the influence of false shepherds. What do they do? They don't just mislead a little bit. 
they destroy lives. Uh, That's what they come to do. Uh, And that is the result of uh, false teaching and false shepherding. But by way of contrast, where the thief comes to kill, Jesus came to give life. Where the thief comes to steal and destroy, what does Jesus come to do? To provide. And to provide abundantly. And Jesus' statement here is emphatic in the same way that his other statements are emphatic in this passage. uh, That I, uh, myself, came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Again, if if you just think through how many politicians, how many leaders have promised solutions, salvation, safety, satisfaction to the masses, right? Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot. They all promise to lead their nations well, right? To, to bring their people out of poverty, to unite them, uh, to, uh, to, to care for them. But what did all of those men deliver? The exact opposite. They sound a lot more like the, the thieves who come to uh, steal, kill, and destroy rather than true shepherds. Moving from, I guess, external politicians outside of the church. There are many false teachers in the church today who promise health, wealth, and success. And some even point to this verse, right? It's a wonderful verse if you pluck it from its context. right? Jesus promises me abundance. I love that. That sounds good. But it can easily be abused. And this promise of an abundant life... Uh, Jesus is not promising, uh, you know, that your business will succeed, that your savings account uh, is going to steadily increase. Jesus is not promising that. What this promise uh, is, I love what one commentator said about this abundant life, it's not merely enough, but it's more than plenty. Okay? And many of us have grown fearful in these times. Right? We might trust Jesus for our salvation from sin, but we struggle to trust Him in our day-to-day lives that He will provide for us. One of the Puritans, Thomas Manton, says this, Many say they can trust God for eternal life, but cannot trust Him for daily bread. This is an utter mistake. There are more difficulties and natural prejudices against pardon and eternal life than there are toward daily provision of bounty. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Thomas Manton proceeds to to point to this verse and just expound the the logic of it. Now you can begin in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And really the question is, if God is for us, does it matter who is against us? And to that we would answer, no, not at all. And then verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right? The Apostle Paul is saying, look, if God 
gave his son to give you eternal life. There's nothing greater for him to withhold and hold back. Like, I'll give you my son, but I won't give you other lesser things. It's an argument from, from greater to lesser. And so often, uh, we, we, again, we trust in Christ for salvation, but then we fret and worry and curl into the fetal position about everyday provision and everyday life. I would point you back to another explanation of what this abundant life looks like. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 33. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? There's another argument from, from lesser to greater, right? If, if God cares for the sparrows and feeds them, is he going to care and provide for us? Absolutely. I, 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 whenever I read this passage, uh, I, I look and I think back to my days as a, a uh, counselor, uh, after-school counselor at the Christian school at our church. And I remember... Uh, thinking, uh, the, the kids with their after-school snacks, their little goldfish, right? You, you give it to kids, uh, and those of you with kids, what happens when you give kids food, just generally speaking? It, it all stays right where you put it, in the cup, right? None of it gets on the floor, none of it gets all over them or anything else. Like, so you, you can imagine when you have hyper kids excited to be done with school, and they're given a cup of goldfish, what sometimes happens? Yeah, the goldfish go onto the ground. And I remember one, one day just kind of being annoyed, like, ah, he's, he's dropping the goldfish, all these things. Uh, and then, we, you know, we dismissed the kids. We sent them over to the playground. And w- what I began to, to notice is as soon as the kids left, the birds came. Kids are gone, and the birds are like, here we come. Time to eat. And I reflected upon these verses. That in the providence of God, does God care for those sparrows? Yeah. And in His providence, He's allowing kids to be kids and goldfish to drop. And He's providing for those sparrows. I didn't see it at the time, didn't comprehend it at the time, but God cares for those sparrows, as evidenced by messy kids. Uh, And, but even more so, does God care about you and I even more than those sparrows? Yeah. And will He provide for us abundantly in one way or another. But again, what does abundance mean? Well, turn, go back to the, if you're in Matthew 6 with me, or if you're just listening, verse 27, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There is a picture of the abundant life. 
right? That we will have just enough. We will have all that we need. But what are we to focus upon? Living for and pursuing Christ, His kingdom, and His righteousness. That is the abundant life. And what more do we need? And what we have seen in this passage, these three promises concerning salvation and the exclusivity of our salvation. Right? Jesus alone promises that He is the door to salvation. Jesus promises that He alone offers uh, eternal life and that He alone delivers abundant life. And we need to look to Him and trust in Him as the shepherd. And we, we, we hit that last week. We're talking about it this week. And we haven't even gotten there yet because verse 11 is actually where He says... I am the good shepherd. But we have to, to get this, this picture and this understanding. Uh, and what Jesus is, is saying to the Pharisees, He is the only way. Everyone must enter through Him, and everyone must see that He is the shepherd that God has promised. Back in the Old Testament, as, as Moses was preparing to die, uh, he had a great concern for God's people. Uh, And uh, he offered up this prayer uh, in Numbers 27, verse 15. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them. There's our language again. Who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And Moses made that prayer, and ultimately, in, in the immediate aftermath of that prayer, who was the one that God raised up to uh, succeed Moses? Joshua. Uh, there is a, a Joshua who answered that prayer immediately, uh, and uh, Jesus is really a uh, Hellenization, or it's a, a Greek interpretation, translation of the name Joshua. There is a greater Joshua pointed to there as well, who is the true shepherd, not only of Israel, but as we're going to see in coming weeks, uh, there are other sheep who are not of this flock that Jesus is going to to bring in. And we've seen these two illustrations of what a shepherd is like. We're going to continue to see what a shepherd is like. And then what is the plan uh, of that shepherd to save and deliver his sheep how is he going to to bring the promises that he that we saw today how is he going to save how is he going to secure and make us safe and how is he going to bring lasting satisfaction to us well what is he going to say in john chapter 11 i am the good shepherd what is the good or john chapter 10 what does the good shepherd do he lays down his life for the sheep there is so much to this, but we can't lose the reality that we are called over and over again to trust in Jesus as our shepherd, not just for salvation, but also in our day-to-day, moment-by-moment provisions. Amen? Let's pray.